Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 128 of Good Humans Podcast with a very special man by the name of Joey Fry. You're going to love this episode. Bit of a trigger warning. Uh, this episode does mention suicide. Joey had an attempt on his life. He's come back so much stronger now. But yeah, if you are in a place right now where it's probably not the time to listen to this episode, uh, be cautious. And if you are struggling and you're in crisis yourself, please give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. But if you are in a good place to listen to this episode, you're going to get so much out of it. We go really deep into loneliness and a whole bunch of things to understand why Joey got to where he was. It's it's a beautiful episode. So please, if you enjoy it, do me a favor, share it around with someone. Give us five stars and uh, the ratings and yeah, like and subscribe to the podcast because the more people who can listen to this, the more people we can hopefully educate and inspire to take a bit better care of their mental health. A big thank you to our sponsors, Drinker Rapper. These guys have been supporting my podcast for so long right now, and I just love them. They're the biggest legends, and it's all about taking better care of our brains. So a rapper is a brain drink, short-term brain performance, long-term brain health, but the best thing is it's all backed by neuroscience. Uh, millions of clinic, millions of dollars of clinical studies have gone into this product and you're going to absolutely love it if you try it out. So many of you guys tag me on Instagram now, which I love to see. So if you want to pick some up, you can grab it at Coles and Woolies in the cold section. Look for the purple glass jar. It's a black currant juice. So tasty. But if you want to check out online, you can use the code GOODHUMAN for a big 25% off. To go over to drinkarepper.com, you can yeah use that code over there. Also, you can check out all of the science. So go check that out. All right, today's episode, Joey, you guys are going to love this. I already mentioned a bit at the start. It is quite a heavy episode, but I really learned a lot from this. Joey just released a documentary called The Great Separation. It's incredible where he speaks to a bunch of experts about loneliness and comes to understand maybe why he got to a place that was so dark that left him, yeah, unfortunately, having an attempt at his life, which left him without one of his uh, legs from above the knee, which... Yeah, it has been difficult for Joey, but now he's um, yeah on a new path. He's really excited for some stuff coming up ahead, which you will hear about in this episode. Uh, it's a really positive ending, and yeah, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode. So let's jump into the chat. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Joey Fry. Hey, you going, mate? Good, Cooper, mate. Thank you very much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this one. Mate, it's um, been a busy week for you. You just dropped a documentary um, all about loneliness and yeah, I just watched it actually right before we clicked record on this and, and it blew me away. There's so many things that I think a lot of us are aware about as uh, as humans with the loneliness epidemic that's going on and there's so many reasons behind it. And um, yeah, because of that, you faced one of the kind of the ultimate consequences of it and had a suicide attempt, so a bit of a trigger warning for people who are going to listen to this chat, your story. Um, 
is very touching and very deep, but I think we can all really be inspired and learn from it and hopefully not have anybody else or, um, yeah, less people go through what you went through throughout, yeah, your late teen years. So, mate, the first question I do open Good Humans podcast with is, what are you grateful for right now? Mate, I'm grateful to still be alive. <laughs> that's that's the biggest one out of all of them. So I actually do that every morning. I, I stare outside before I click onto my phone and, and see the updates overnight as I look outside and think of three things that I'm grateful for. Uh, number one is always that the fact I'm still here. So yes, so I had an attempt on my life and the consequences was not the worst out of all of it. I survived and uh, I became a better young man for it. So that's number one. Uh, number two is that I'm grateful of the documentary it's been a crazy week as you say we um we launched it on mental health week mental health day i should say and the response has just been crazy like unbelievable just the amount of people that are flooding in telling me how well i've done which i can never hear more <laughs> I can never hear <laughs> yeah no nah, it's so cool man it's called the great separation for anyone out there looking to get it where can they go and watch it on sbs on demand for all the next year so it's uh, something I've been quite passionate about and we've been working hard for a year to get it all sorted. So to get to this week, it's um, it's a bit of a pinch yourself kind of moment. Yeah, it's um, it's so fascinating. I really like the way that you guys put it together from sharing your story, but then instead of going the route that a lot of people who have maybe a suicide attempt and really dial in on mental health, mm-hmm. you really dialed in on why. It was yeah. like, mm, it's not, it was like, okay, what was the underlying reason? And you found that it came back to loneliness. And then you did some amazing research with neuroscientists, experts, and did some interviews with some fascinating people, which I learned so much from. So we, we will catch up to that part and talk a bit about some of these different things that you learned throughout the documentary. But first, we've got to get to know who you are. We've got to get to know your story and rewind back to the start. So let us know where you grew up, what life was like as a kid. And yeah, what do I need to know about your childhood? That'll give me a bit of a context for who you are. No, okay. All right, here we go. So again, trigger warning. Uh, we, we start off happy and healthy. It is does get a little bit sad during the middle there with, with the attempt, but please stick with me because it's a comeback story for sure. So I am Joey Fry. I'm from Newcastle. I'm a proud Novocastrian. I'm 26 years young. Um, I'm a former surfer, little rat bag grommet running around the streets of Merriweather growing up. I had a great upbringing. Um, I had a, my mum and my sister, my family were absolutely fantastic. It wasn't until I started getting a little bit older where I had these feelings coming in that I didn't quite know what were. I think in the space of you know, early 2015 and 2016, there wasn't that much of a conversation around mental health and that kind of thing. So people experiencing those kinds of those feelings didn't really know what they were. Well, I certainly didn't know what was going on. I felt odd and I felt out of place and everything like that. And it wasn't until 2019 where I had split with my long-term partner and I didn't deal with that well at all. So I retracted big time from family and friends. I stopped seeing, you know, stopped going to parties, stopped seeing my mates. From the outside looking in, it was all okay, right? So I would still be going to work as a plasterer. I had I had a business at the time with a few employees. Can I pause you here and be really rude? We're going to... I want to take a bit more time to get through this upbringing because I feel like understanding what maybe led you to this is kind of just as important as because I feel like it sounds like your upbringing was quite nice, quite normal. So let's talk about high school. What was high school like for you? Going from a young kid, primary school is always, I mean, everyone has a different experience, but let's talk about once you get to high school, that's where we start to really 
I guess, understand who we are a little bit more and start to see the world through a different light. So what was high school like for you those first couple of years? Um, were you sporty? Were you into academic stuff? Where did you kind of think your life was going to go throughout school? Was it always like, I'm going to be a tradie? Yeah, t- tell me about that high school experience. Yeah, so high school was cool. I actually really enjoyed it. So in the early days of high school, it was plenty of friends, uh, great, you know, bunch of group of friends. Really sporty, as you said. I was into every touch football and footy and everything through the school. Uh, as I started getting into year eight and nine, I started to become a little shit, basically. Just one of those kids that teachers hated teaching. You go, oh, great, I've got to teach Joey and here we go. So I spent more of my time outside the classroom than I did in um, and then come the days of, you know, we, we started wagging and going to the beach. That was, that was a really actually fun time in my life. That was when I was right connected with all my friends and everything. And, uh, we spent most of our time down at the beach when we should have been in the classroom. But at the time when you're that young and you're going through and finding your identity, I don't think you're looking too much toward the future. You're right there always in the moment when you're a grommet. And um, those days were fantastic. They were the best I've ever had with some of my best mates. So I guess looking toward the future, I knew that I wouldn't make it to quite the HOC. So I started, you know, skipping class. I was more at the beach and I was, I was surfing and everything. And, I, and I'm getting a little bit older. You figure, well, I'm going to have to do something in this world. It's not going to be hanging down at the beach, chasing girls every, every day. It's, um, so I moved into the space of plastering. I did work experience through plastering, took a liking to it. And by the time I was 17, I was out of school and uh, into an apprenticeship. So that was uh, the first step into my adult journey. And it started quite young, actually, you could say, from 17. Yeah, I feel like you do have to grow up quite quick. Anyone who leaves school early and starts a trade, starts working with older men, you become quite involved in that environment that can become quite toxic. I do speak to a lot of tradies, I have a lot of tradie friends and, it's and I've worked on a trade site many years as well myself. Yeah. And I know kind of the culture that can be involved there. What was it like when you first got on the scene as a tradie? Was it something that you're like, oh, this is way better than school? I don't have the authority of a school teacher, but I've got the authority of a boss. How was that change up for you when you went from school to working on a job site? Initially, it was awesome. So I have the freedom of the independence and um, making my own money, making my own decisions, knowing that the apprenticeship is taking me somewhere in life. Uh, and then it turned sour pretty quickly. And I realized that the apprentice are the shit kickers of the job site. So in my early days of my apprenticeship, I was treated awfully from the other, other blokes I was working with, from the support around TAFE and everything, because it was very early days back then. It might have only been 2015 or so. It was a hard transition from the schooling life where, you know, I kind of pick and choose when I wanted to go and all that kind of stuff to I need to rock up 6.30 Monday and then work all that all that week. And towards the end of the week, you'd have very little to show for it as an apprentice. Um, and a lot of, you know, not I wouldn't say abuse, but a lot of uh, hard times fell on you from being the um, the apprentice inside that uh, inside that company. Mm, that's crazy. The culture of like trades. I feel like there is some companies that are changing, but I feel like it's so entrenched into Aussie culture. Like give the shit to the apprentice. It's kind of the bullying, like hard love. Like it's. It, it's a hard one. I grew up at North Narrabeen, a beach that's well known for kind of uh, not bullying but well known for uh 
yeah, like toxic culture and sort of not harassment. I don't know, a bit bullying, I guess, bullying young kids to sort of like tough love to toughen them up. Yeah. But I think it can have a detrimental effect on a lot of people. I want to sure. quickly, yeah, tell me about, yeah, do you feel like? I was like just going to say time? that I think, I think you, what you're saying is exactly right. Um, I know I remember when I was surfing in America, there was always this kind of hierarchy and the hierarchy would be from who was the better surfer. So if you're the better surfer out there, you've got priority of waves and everything, which should not have been the case, but it really was. And that hierarchy came from the older lads all the way down to the young grommets that were just trying to catch scraps. Mm. Uh, and I felt that in the trade scenario as well. So if you know, if you're the the second second offside to the boss, what's this little pipsqueak that's just dropped out of school? He's 16 years old. I'm going to get him to do all the um, all the all the awful work and treat him like shit in the, in the process. So that was yeah. it was a hard transition, but I feel yeah, it's getting better. Honestly, sorry to cut you off, but I, I feel there is a change in the tide in the way that um, men are behaving and talking with their colleagues in the workplace, especially on site. It's something mm. that um, I experienced. So I lost my leg and one of the, the biggest goals for me was to get back to work straight away. So that looked like bartending at the start and then uh, in the end, plastering, getting back to plastering, having that leg and I have this story now right as well so whenever someone would ask I would start that conversation and some of the conversations that I was receiving back from you know these hardened brickies and and concreters were quite vulnerable so I I feel like men are slightly changing in the way that they're they're speaking on sites for sure yeah I think it definitely like I mean not that your story relates directly back to that but i just think in general people are starting to realize the epidemic of mental health issues that there are in australia of mental illness in young men and yeah it it has to have some sort of impact definitely has some sort of impact we all see it firsthand i just want to quickly talk about your relationship with your mum and your sister because i feel like people are going to be able to relate to your story i'm going to make an assumption here it sounded like you have a great relation you, you sound like you have a great relationship with them because Obviously, once you break up with your girlfriend and go through a tough time, you feel so alone, even though they are right there next to you, your yeah. parent, your mum and sister. So talk me through that relationship because I feel like so many people might go like, oh, I feel so alone, but just don't realise how much love they do have right around them. Yeah, for sure. So like like I said in the story, it took such an awful experience to realise what was right there in front of my face the whole time. Mm-hmm. So my mum, Lee, and my sister, Lucy, have always been in my life. They've been fantastic it was kind of my fault why we dropped off um if growing up as a young man I made a lot of mistakes in my life and my behavior changed into a way that I almost censored them from the person that I was becoming and and the actions that I was doing so we really grew apart to the point where I barely saw them or spoke to them and that's a big reason as to why I moved into the 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 loneliness and everything that was there so why, yeah, I could, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, why do you think you censored yourself from them? I bet looking back now, reflecting, you have probably a bit of a reason why you did it. Yeah, it's it was just shame, man. Um, it's embarrassment. You really, you, so mum raised me to be this you know strong young man. She actually said she named me because she wanted someone to be able to have a shout at the bar. So she said, I couldn't name you something ridiculous, so I had to name you a strong name like Joseph, Joey. It's your it's your shout at the bar, and that's the kind of person that she wanted me to grow up to be and with the choices and decisions that I was making uh, I was quite embarrassed and that's why I sheltered them away from what I was doing and uh, we lost touch pretty quickly 
like it's a pretty common thing for young men to did you grow up with a father figure no so he he took off pretty young um we were I was as I said I was a pretty terrible kid and um while mum stuck around and helped me through it or you know still still loved me through it he he decided to walk away so I haven't seen him in 10 years plus now um that's actually quite a sore, sore topic for me because as well as I am a happy, healthy young man and I am, you know, better off without him, I've done this without him. Uh, it did, did definitely led me into some of the behaviours and and things like that growing up yeah. with mum. Yeah, sorry to bring that up if it is a touchy subject. I'm just trying to piece the puzzle together on why you feel like you the distance a bit from your family, from your mum and sister and and. It, I'm like no expert, but just from the outside looking in, I, I speak to a lot of people and people without that strong father figure can kind of rebel a bit. And then, like you said, the parents are like, oh, what's he doing? And you're in your head saying, what am I doing? And have this shame, but then you just don't know better. It's kind of, yeah, I just feel like I feel well, for you, man, because you're admitting you're taking accountability that, you know what, I was a shit kid, but it's like, there's no judgment on that. It's like the only way forward is to admit our flaws and then work on them. And so many people aren't willing to do that. And it's so awesome that you are now but unfortunately it's so tragic that you had to go through what you did to come to that realization yeah so basically all my behavior was unchecked i was i was running around and there was a line between you know harmful or harmless grommet behavior and then what i started to to get into and without that supervision or anything or that father figure around yeah i rebelled i rebelled in such a way that left me ashamed of who I was and that's why I retracted from mum and my sister and everything and other friends too. Like I, I fell into a crowd that changed who I am and it shaped who, who I am today. And like you said, I've only ever learned from that experience, but it took such a big moment in my life to realize and piece it all together. Mm. Different, but somewhat relatable. I want to just say that the whole reason behind the good human factory was there was times where I don't know what exactly how, what sort of acting up you were doing. I was never a really ratty kid, but I always had this like inner voice that I call like my inner good human that would like tell you like, that's where that shame and that embarrassment comes from because we know better. There is that goodness in all of us, but so many of us are just so scared to listen to it. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, yeah, it's really cool to know that, the, I just watched your documentary. I see the sort of man you are. It's so beautiful where you are now. But yeah, you had to go through that tragic circumstance. So, do you want to tell us? Um, now we can catch up to those sort of moments. Just want to tell me those six months leading up to that. Were you living by yourself? Were you living with your partner? You're working a job as a um, young tradie. I bring this all up because I, I know there's going to be somebody listening to this, whether they're in their teens or in their late twenties, who's a young man or who has a friend who has somebody that goes oh, that actually looks pretty similar to a friend of mine or to me. And and I think people might be able to maybe identify something a bit earlier by hearing your story. So, yeah, as much as you're willing to share, let's talk about that six months leading up to the 24th of December 2019. Yeah, so like you said, it is quite relatable. It's And unfortunately it is. Like there will be someone out there that's going through similar feelings that what I was going through. And um, I guess that's why I choose to share my story. It's uh, It's not comfortable for me to do so. I'm never actually... You know that keen and that psych to do it but i choose to do it so people can learn from my mistakes and you know learn that anything you can come back from anything so mm. look we go into 2019 it's about six months previous to the attempt on my life uh i've actually just got back from a surf trip in similu 
and I'm flying high. This is, you know, the happiest I can be. I've just been surfing perfect waves for two weeks and come back to work and, you know, to get back into the rhythm of things. And How I old are you here? Sorry, real quickly. How uh, I was 23 at the time. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So I had a very sudden split with my long-term partner. And like I said before, that, that hit me pretty hard. Was it just the two of you living together? It was the two of us and my best mate, Louis. Um, so the two of, two of us split and then my behavior changed like that immediately. So much so that Louis, my best mate, had to move out. He just couldn't handle me anymore. It was, it was, it was pretty awful, to be honest, the way that I was behaving. Uh, and I don't blame him for, live, for moving out. But that was the first time in my adult life that it left me living alone. Um, so the next five months leading up to Christmas Eve, it was just me by myself. Uh, and I can now see that that was the first time I was experiencing severe loneliness, which is so hard to admit while you're in it. And it's so hard to bring yourself out of it and force yourself into connections you know, while you're going through it. And uh, I experienced it. And I imagine a lot of people out there are now experiencing it as well. And I guess we'll get to you know ways to pull yourself out of that later. Yeah. So for five months, I'm living by myself. I'm still showing up to work. I'm I still have all those kind of connections around me, but I just couldn't wait to be home and be alone. I would shut the door on everything. I'd turn my phone off. So like I said before, the outside looking in, I was completely healthy, and no one could see how bad it was getting, until the point where we got to Christmas Eve on 2019. And I had actually seen my ex-partner that night on a night out. We had a little bit of a blue. And um, I went home and I was just in grief of the person that I used to be. You know, six months ago, I was a happy, healthy young man surfing on in Indo. And, you know, I had everything there for me. I had the the business around me. Life was good. And then six months into the future, I feel like this. So I made that awful decision that night. Uh, I remember sitting with my best mate. He knew something was up because I was in tears. I was really, really upset, but he had to go home eventually. So I remember sitting with him and he said, um, like, you're going to be all right. We'll get through this. It's it's all good. But in my mind, I had already made that decision that tonight was the last night for me on this earth. Um, so eventually, yeah, he had to leave and I I shut all the doors I went through this little routine that um, I won't speak to because I like to keep that to myself. Um, it's that's something for for me to grow as a person that I always remember that, and then I'll mm. I won't share that. And uh, yeah, I, I tr- attempted to take my life on Christmas Eve, uh, and then for the next six days, I don't remember a thing. So I was found by my best mate the next day, Abe. The unfortunate way that I passed out was the left leg was on top of my right leg and it cut off all the circulation to the leg and my muscles inside started dying. They went toxic. And um, when he finally found me the next day, about two o'clock Christmas, he flipped me on my side, still unconscious. And the release of all of that pressure, the blood started trickling, trickling back into my circuitry system and it actually shut down my heart a numerous amounts of times. So he called the ambulance. Again, I don't remember any of it. Apparently I was coming to and out of consciousness and the ambulance had to resus me a few times on the way to the hospital. Uh, and no one knew at this time what was going on. They didn't know that the leg had gone toxic and it was compartment syndrome. They couldn't understand why my heart was still stopping. So they put me into an induced coma 
and a few days later they ended up taking the leg off still in a induced coma until I, mean, I think it was maybe the third of January the next the next uh, year and I remember this I'll I'll never forget it actually it's it's the um one of those life-changing moments so I remember waking up out of the induced coma and my mum was on the other end of the bed and she I kind of looking around I'm in this medical haze and I see her and I fixate on her and, I, and she says sweetheart there's there's been an accident and you've lost your leg and my heart just broke. It was it was honestly the hardest thing I've ever had to hear from someone that you love so much. And I just felt grief and shame and everything on the most extreme scale. Uh, and followed that was the hardest six months of my life during rehab and surgeries. Wow, man. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. I know there's going to be people listening that We'll be very touched by that story and know, yeah, that there's going to be people that will be able to relate and see people in a similar situation. And I mean, it's a miracle that you're still here, man. I I literally had another friend. His name's Luke Berland. He's um Brian Williams' best friend who unfortunately took his own life a few months ago. So it's just it's so beautiful that you. There's so many stories, it, about it, man. And honestly, he'd actually been a guest on this podcast. He was on um, really a special not. nitro. It was a special nitro world games he competed in nitro world games last year and he came on the podcast and had a quick chat and then yeah unfortunately so this is bringing up some stuff for you as well yeah it's i mean i work in mental health obviously so i see this stuff and i feel like i've become not desensitized to it but because i know how common it is i'm just like learning to really accept death in a weird way i don't know why but it's just something that thing either you need to keep reminding yourself that um you know you know suicidal and these kind of scenarios are not normal so mm. you need i know that you may have come you know desensitized to it because it's so common but it's there's still hard so hard to hear sometimes aren't they oh it's just it just it makes me so sad there's so many people that would wish to have life who have terminal illness and stuff who i've spoken to and then for that but obviously people it's it's not about that suicide's such a just such a tragic thing our minds and our mental health is just outrageous but let's keep let's keep going with your story so you said the following six months was the hardest six months of your life talk me through the recovery coming to terms with losing your leg um and yeah what what that looked like that next six months yeah so both physically and mentally the games were high stakes so yeah the leg was in no in no shape at all. So I went through over the next six months, 16 surgeries, a lot of retractions. It wasn't quite, there would still be some muscles that were dead. So they'd take me back to surgery, chop a little bit more off. Um, and then we went down the route of skin grafts. So the stump that I've ended up with is about 30, 30% skin graft. So it's a very high amputation. It's um, one that's covered in skin graft. So it's it's very delicate in the way. So I didn't really know what to think about it when I was in hospital. I was just trying to get through it. I was trying to get through it unscathed and as quickly as possible. Um, it was the hardest time in my life because sitting in that hospital bed of a nighttime is the most lonely place in the world. And I feel for anyone that has been through it or going through it now because I completely understand there is the support of the nurses and the doctors around. But when you're in that that bed by yourself, and for me as well, because it was just, it was all on my actions. So I feel quite guilty because I'm looking around at people that have had accidents and they didn't wish this, this on themselves. And the, and I've done this to myself. 
So this whole time I'm feeling guilt and shame and everything. But I also experienced things like compassion and love. So like I said, it was right in front of my face the whole time. My friends, my family, the community, everything was at my back the minute that I woke up and they, were, they wanted to lift me up. And I knew that I didn't die that day for a reason. I didn't know what that reason looked like. I just knew that when I'm fit and when I'm healthy and I've got my prosthetic, then I'm going to go on. I'm going to live a life full of love and compassion and I'm going to not fuck it up this second time around, basically. So when was it? When was the first time lying in bed that you kind of went, wow, okay, my life is worth living. That was a something I regret attempting, but now like, was there a moment that your kind of mental health, you feel like changed, even though you're experiencing probably some of the loneliest times ever in that bed, was there still those thoughts or were you at that stage? Like, No. So I knew that I wanted to kick on. Uh, um, I was determined actually. Yeah. It was, it was quite hard being in the hospital bed and having, you know, going forward, going back, you know, now we have to cut more leg off. I never knew when I was going to get out and get fitted with my prosthetic, but there was always this thing in the back of my head. Like you said before, the, the good humans, that, that voice in your head, that voice in my head for me was, I want to make good on the mistakes that I've made. So I want to mm. make my friends and family proud. I could never shake the guilt or the shame of what I've done of what I've put my family through so I wanted to live a life where they could be proud of me. And that was that was the silver bullet moment where I was like, okay, determination, get through this. You'll get on the other side and you'll get healthy and you'll make them proud of you. Good on you, man. It's um, it's special to hear that mindset and that shift in mindset and to have that capacity to take that on because I can imagine so often people who have attempted suicide like yourself ended with um I, i've got a few people who i know have in my inner circle or people that i know who have attempted to take their life that have ended in wheelchairs and things like that and yeah it's just like that mindset of like oh my god like what have i done but it sounds like you're like no nah, you know what this is giving me a second chance yeah let's make the most of it so when did the idea um behind the documentary come out because quite often as i touched on at the start people there's a lot of incredible suicide survivor um, store attempt survivor stories and a lot of them really dial in on mental health but I think the way that you've approached kind of going after okay why was what like why did I get to that obviously there's things that lead to it but it's like we can't always it's not it's not the victim's fault it's a person it's like a society as a whole there's a reason why we get to this point and a lot of the time it isn't our fault but it is our responsibility to understand why so can you tell me when you first understood and well, we first even started questioning, holy shit, how did I get here? Yep, for sure. Oh, so you're not going to go into the documentary just yet? You're just going to talk we about will, it? We will, but yeah, just when you realised, oh, it was loneliness, and then yeah. that leave, then, then you can segue into when you yeah, started yeah. going, let's make a documentary about this and educate people. Yeah, so actually this is my favourite story to tell, uh, and you won't right. believe it, man. It's the serendipity of it is quite crazy. So we'll go back to 2021. Uh, fast forward, so I've been fitted with the prosthetic, I've got employment back. I'm living independently again. I'm starting to get happy and healthy. I'm We're ending COVID times as well. So I'm starting to go out to gigs and really starting to get finding my foot and the prosthetic again. Uh, and then slowly, slowly release a song called Blueprint. Now that they are my favorite band. And this song is all about getting back to basics, enjoying life again. It has a lyric inside there saying this is the first time in forever that I don't feel alone. 
I resonated with all of that so much. Plus, it's an absolute tune. Mm. Um, so much so that uh, I rung up Triple J, my favourite station, and had a chat with Bridget Husswaite, the Good Nights presenter at the time. And she just wanted some wholesome stories about who we're voting for in the, in the Host 100. And I thought, you know, what's more wholesome than a formerly depressed, lonely young man that's lost his leg and now he's happy and healthy and he's on the other side. So off I go. I call up uh, Triple J and talk to Bridget. I just dive straight in. You know, I've attempted to take my life. It's been two years now and I'm happy and healthy. This is why I'm voting for it. Little did I know that there was a documentary filmmaker called Shannon Swan living in Melbourne. He was driving home from work uh, a little later than he normally does, flipping through the radio stations. And he and the producers already had the arc of the film. So it was, they had, they wanted to do a, a film on documentary. They, I mean, they wanted to do a documentary on belonging and connection. They had all the experts lined up, but they didn't have a protagonist. They didn't know who the hero was going to be to follow in the journey. So he, anyway, he's flipping through all the radio stations. Then hears my voice. And he pulls over and he goes, that's it. That's that's my guy. My goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. But serendipity, I can't, I can't believe it. It's um, it's quite incredible. So he's tracked me down just as simply Joey from Newcastle. So the, the power of social media, he's got in touch with me. And initially I thought it was some sort of scam or something like that. But uh, he said, no, nah, man, I'm a big deal. I'm a serious dude. He's he's um, he's directed a few films called Gurumul and things like that. Like he's, he's a really well-known documentary filmmaker uh, and it wasn't until he decided to fly up to Newcastle from Melbourne to come and meet me you know six pack of beer in one hand and the idea of the film in the other and then oh hang on we just got a little puppy here <laughs> um, yeah yeah six pack of beer in one hand and a uh, and the idea in the other and he said mate we really want you to be a part of this and I said um, three things I said mate first of all I'm not an actor so you're going to have to help me through every step of the step of the way. Uh, number two, it needs to be an honest recount of what happened. So I didn't I didn't want to any fictionalize or dramatize anything in the documentary. And number three, it needs to be portrayed in a way that it's going to help other people. And he said yes. So off we went. Mate, it's a it's an amazing documentary. I just watched it, and like you said, it it does paint a great picture of sort of starts with your story but then really goes into some ways to help people and to identify why people are feeling this way and what's led us to this so let's maybe go through that for a little bit let's talk about the documentary some of the incredible people you met and some of the biggest takeaways and lessons you learn um I guess one of the first places that maybe we'll start is one of the things that fascinated me and, and it's so true is the fact that our houses are getting bigger, but our families are getting smaller. Our fences out the front of our houses are getting bigger. Like I'm being honest, I couldn't tell you, I don't know a single neighbor around my whole neighborhood. I just right. rent like a little place. And I mean, I've got incredible connections. Don't get me wrong. I have a very deep network of people who I spend a lot of time with. So I feel like I don't really need that need of this direct community right around my neighbors. But after watching your documentary, I was like, I need to get better at that. So yeah, tell me a little about, Um, let's start with that. And then let's just work through a couple of things. Yeah, so the doco, mate, uh, it was an incredible experience and um, I'm glad that I said yes to it. So just going off, um, who, who I think it was Dr. Stephen Dark, he was the one that was telling us about our properties and the way that we're building our houses now is all for privacy. Whether it was, you know, back in the, in the 70s, we were building houses 
with that passive surveillance of the street. So you'd have the you'd have the kitchen at the front and then a nice little balcony out the front looking onto the street. So you can see people walking by and things like that. And you have that incidental connection with your community. These days we're building the biggest houses in the world to support such small families. So mm-hmm. and then we're putting up bigger walls at the start, the front of the house. So we're completely cut off from the community. And then we have our living area and our backyards where we do all our family socializing. Whether is I think in the, the the recent years, we need to be trending in a way where we need to get back towards building houses so we can be have a more community feel. Yeah. I should have probably started with this. I, I, I just found that fascinating because people will listen to that and go, oh, yeah, true. But this is the idea that it's not us. It's the design of our society is yeah. really pushing us towards this. So let's talk about a bit of the data and the statistics now. This is something that fascinated me that 25% of people are feeling lonely. So one in four people you walk past are feeling lonely. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. something like if you are in that 25%, you're 17 more times likely to have an attempt on your life. Yeah, so yeah, talk crazy. to me about some of the statistics you learn along that documentary journey and, yeah, the problem that we do have with loneliness. Yeah, so the statistics was an eye-opener and it's scary. So me going through all these experiences and everything, I, I really felt like a statistic the whole time. But once I was meeting all these experts, they they told me that, you know, it isn't just me. There's There's life behind each one of these stories. So... I guess whenever I speak, I speak to my lived experience story, but I'm just one voice in a sea of thousands of other people. And I think that I really understand that now. So everyone has their own mental health story and their own journey and everything. And before, when we just look at these statistics, we just think numbers. So one in four, like that's, yeah, it's a crazy big number. But if you think about each one of those stories out of the four, it's it's a pretty hard hard number to to swallow. Oh. It's like, imagine right now you're sitting there, this is an exercise. Anyone who's out there sitting in their car, listening right now, maybe not if you're sitting in your car, but think about one in four people you meet and then close your eyes and really try and have the empathy to put yourself in that person's shoes and imagine what they're feeling right now alone. Like they don't belong. They've got no one to go to. And if you're one of those four people, I truly empathize with you. And I'm sure you obviously know that feeling better than anyone, Joe. Yeah, for sure. I'm just like, and I, and I feel like a lot of us feel it at times, definitely, but hopefully for not too prolonged a period of time but that's when we start to really see those detrimental impact is when it just is continuous and then it almost promotes it it's like once you're feeling lonely the last thing you want to do is be around people so it's kind of like a snowballing effect yeah so loneliness actually breeds more loneliness and i'll just jump in there real quick as well it's something that we all experienced during the lockdowns remember so that was too long ago. So if you're not one of the the four, you can empathize and think about, remember that time that you were isolated and completely cut off from anyone. So it's something that we don't touch in the film at all, COVID, because this problem and epidemic around loneliness has always been there. And unfortunately, we're, we're striving to, to end loneliness, but it's something that will always be there. It's a human emotion, but it's something that every, we've experienced very recently, everyone. So you can empathize with the people that are going through it right now. Mm, it's it's just like, it's so tough. But one of the things that's a very obvious one that it does get talked about quite a bit in the documentary, and I'm sure every single person who's listening right now is listening on a device. So they probably have social media, they have a device. Talk to me about the um, learnings that you had from talking to experts around their um, obvious in- massive increase in device there was this one pie chart that i was just like oh my god that pie chart where it's like what we used to spend our time on was like 
25% of our time socializing, 15% of our time exercising, 10% of our time um, uh, eating, cooking, cooking and yeah. eating, and then like 40% with work and 40% with um, sleep. Whereas then the pie chart goes, and then like most of us are having like four, five, six, seven hours like a day on social media. So we have to lose time in other aspects of our life. And when you're doing that over a year, like you're losing thousands of hours of actual connection, thousands of hours of actual nutrition, eating good food, thousands of hours of outdoor activity in nature. So yeah, talk to me about what you learned from that and the effects that's having on us. For sure. So I'm on both sides of the social media train. I do understand. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Well, you know, the Good Humans podcast wouldn't survive without it and I wouldn't be able to get my, you know, my message out there. So there is pros and there's cons both to social media. It comes back to how we use it though. That's right. Especially in the way that it connects us. It really does. So my friends and family that live overseas and things like that, I am now still at the touch of a button being able to be connected with them. It goes back, like you said, to the way that we use it. So I find whenever I'm mindlessly scrolling, if if I'm not registering what I'm actually looking at, then that's enough. I, I'll I'll put my phone down and look for something else to do, whether that be reading, exercise or something else. Because like you said in that pie chart, the more time that we're spending is cutting into the time where we should be doing all the healthy things for you know proper mental health and our physical health as well. And mm. I actually put that into practice on... Uh, the day of the documentary launch so my phone blew up all fantastic things but it just didn't stop all day and I found myself just on the phone for three hours and I hadn't moved and I was like no I need to switch off I need to get outside so what I do is my release is um, my puppy dog Isabella so whenever social media is getting a little bit too much and it's a beautiful day outside we'll jump on the bike and head down to the local bike uh, local park I should say so that's that's something that I do quite regularly is whenever I find myself just scrolling for no reason, it's force yourself to put it down, find something else to do. Yeah, and then as well, I think it just comes back to taking notice and watching your guys' documentary to be educated on the fact that we know negative news spreads way faster than positive. So we're getting fed negative news thousands of times a day. Once we start to actually oh, take notice that they're doing that for a reason, it's pushing our fear center of our mind, which is a human built into our system. Like it's so heavy. And I talk about this all the time in my workshops and my keynote. And I say to people, we have all the skills to be happy around us. They don't cost anything, but they take a little bit of work. And yeah. we've just been so bombarded with marketing Buy this. Then you'll be happy. Go on this holiday. Then you'll be happy. The biggest obvious one is like, let's go to McDonald's and get a happy meal. I mean, come on. It's yeah, right in front on. of our, fa- it's right in front of our faces so often. It's the but convenience of it too. That's what's driving. Yeah, we're just so, and we're just so conditioned to not really be conscious of our choices each day. We're just sort of, oh, just going through because it's the norm. It's what everyone else is doing. If you're sitting in a park up against a tree you're weird compared to the 10 people sitting on the bench on their phone. It's like, how has that become the norm? Like traveling is just outrageous now. And and I can't like, I'm not saying I'm not doing this either. I'm saying I'm sucked into this vortex too, but it's like, okay, let's start taking notice and then fighting back against it. Like you going, okay, let's set boundaries. Let's set rules. A good one. And and this is something that I do and something that you spoke about in the documentary too. And I've spoken to a few neuroscientists recently about this, this idea that when we're scrolling on our phone, it's releasing cortisol, which is how we, this is stress. So when we're just going through our phone, 
especially in the mornings, it builds up and we only have a certain stress threshold but throughout our days before we sleep and it gets cleared back out of our brains. And so many of us are reaching that in the first 10 minutes of our morning going on social media. So it's like setting those boundaries. Like for me, I don't go on my phone before seven and after seven, only during the day I can go on it. And that's been a big help for me. So yeah, what are some strategies? Obviously you said that one, but anything else going off what I just said around what yeah. you noticed through the research um, from some of the experts you talked to? Yeah, dude, I'm so glad you brought that up actually, because toward the end of the film, I meet a, a neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Selena Bartlett, and she says exactly that. We only have enough space in our brain for all of these stresses that come in. So they say that we hardwire stress into our brains 10 times at the rate that what we do happiness and pleasure. So the first thing you're doing in the morning is looking at your phone, all these like marketing agencies and bad news and everything that's stressing your brain immediately. So one of the things that I do is I just don't look at it. So I try and get up, I'll shower, brush my teeth, whatever. If it's a really good day, I can get to the gym and back without looking at my phone. And then you pick it up and you start your day. So there's all these correlations between all the experts. Funnily enough, they know what they're talking about. <laughs> so we're talking to the social media expert and then we're also talking to the um, the, the brain scientist, the neurologist. It's They know what they're talking about and they work hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. It's... um. It's just so fascinating, like all this information's out there. And it's, like I said, it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility to educate ourselves. Like it's not going to change. Like it's all well and good to be the victim and blame the social media giants and blame the big corporates and blame the big marketing agencies, but it's not going to change it. It's like blaming... I mean, it's a, this is kind of a bit of a flip and I don't really want to go down this route, but it's like blaming the consumer on plastic pollution going, oh, you got to reduce, reuse, reduce your carbon footprint. It's like, well, no, just stop making the stuff that's making us have the carbon footprint. But yeah, anyway, you've got, to, is, yeah. you've got to shoulder some of the responsibility and you need to hold yourself accountable sometimes. I think that's that's the biggest take out of it. Yeah, another great one that I that was in the documentary was this idea, and I see this all the time, is when you're sitting down face-to-face with someone, and I do this too. So I'm, I'm once again, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but it's something I'm very conscious of. And I'm with my partner. She's very conscious of this too. Like she's never on her phone when we're around each other, especially if we're sitting at a dinner table, if we're sitting in a context where we should be face to face looking at people's eyes. So talk to me about that, how important it is, because I know you spoke to a body language expert. Um, and I think this is fascinating. I don't know if you can remember the, the stats off the top of your head. I, I can try and guess some of them, but the idea that we actually only 60 no what is it two-thirds of our communication is through body language so when we're not when we're talking through our text through our phone we're losing 60 percent of what we'd normally communicate as humans so we're not connecting yeah, and not releasing those serotonin and oxytocin chemicals like we should be when we connect with humans yeah that's exactly it man the 60 percent. so the 60 percent of uh all communication face to face is done non-verbally so it's with your body language, it's the way that you're upbeat and you're looking at someone in the eyes and they're reflecting, they're mirroring what, what you are. And, mate, I'm guilty for the phone as well to this day. It's become the new norm to in a, like almost awkward situation. It's like, oh, I'll retract and I'll just be here on the phone. So I'm guilty to it as well, but I'm actively trying to be better at it. One example I can I can take I can come up with actually is um, so I'm a single man in my dating life, first and second dates and things like that. The phone doesn't come out at all. So you really want to be present in the moment, having that kind of body language that yes, I'm acknowledging you and I'm here in this moment. So that uh, is a massive thing, all your body language. And 
when you pull out the phone, it's saying to the person across the across the way from you that um, they're not good enough or the conversation isn't quite good enough. And then straight away, that's putting up barriers in between people. Yeah, it's just like, it's just showing like, mm, this is more important than our conversation in real life. And it fascinates me. Like I was at the airport yesterday and I was just looking around. I'm on my computer editing a podcast on my phone doing shit. So I'm in no place to judge, but just taking notice of how many like families are sitting with each other, but all four of them are on their phone. And all these people, like 90% of people I'd say were on their phone. And it's like, what's more important than that real life connection? Surely the bloody, whatever you're looking at on your phone isn't as important as what's happening right now. And it's like, it's because we have such an option in front of us and we don't yeah, connect like we used to because we've just got such big variety to choose from now. Yeah, so variety is definitely um, a detrimental to us. We have so much option out there that we can go and pick and choose all these different experiences while we're together. And just just going back to the airport, can you imagine being in the airport in the 70s or something before the phone has come out? The amount of chance meetings and different people and interesting people you would have met by just you know having a, having a drink at the bar with someone that's about to fly somewhere else. I, um, but- I, I'm kind of envious of that almost. But it starts with us. You have to be open to it. I'll give you a story. I flew home um last night from Sydney to the Gold Coast. I had like a delayed flight. I had to fly Jetstar instead of Virgin. I was like, all I want to do is get on this flight and watch a movie and get ready to <laughs> go home and go to bed. And I, as I'm pulling up to my seat, this guy's like, oh, hey, Cooper, do you have a podcast? And I was like, yeah, man, how you going? And like, I, I love having a chat to people, and especially. And he's like, oh, I've seen your podcast. Like, I've actually got my own podcast company where I help with podcasts. And then we sat down and it felt like my plane went in a second. Uh, and we just kind of chatted ideas about podcasts. We agreed he's going to come on mine. He's this epic dude from Venezuela called Nelson who was a dentist and went through this crazy story. And I'm like, if I just had my headphones on, and that was another big one, headphones on is like shows that you're not open to communicate. But I was like, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have met this guy. We're going to catch up now. He's going to help me with some stuff. I'm going to help him with some stuff. It's like, I feel quite lucky that I am quite open to this stuff. And I I, I do long form interviews with people multiple times a week. So I feel like I've gotten pretty good at asking questions, but it comes with practice and we're kind of evaporating that practice. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk about now before we get to what you're coming up to after this documentary now, but towards the end of the documentary, you got some practical skills, some ways that we can foster a bit more connection, some ways that we can, yeah, uh, avoid loneliness in our life. So do you want to share some of those different strategies that you're now implementing into your life and ways that people listening can maybe have some just simple steps forward? Yeah. So I'll start with what I should have been doing. So the, the, the six months leading up to my attempt, I should have voiced it to anybody to, to a family member, to a professional, uh, friends, whatever. I should have voiced the the opinion, uh, that my feelings that I was going through, right? Uh, that's a regret that I'll always have. So to anyone out there that is, you know, in that similar scenario, it's a non-judgmental conversation that needs to be had. That's, that's probably the number one. Since the documentary and coming into a young man that I am today and I'm confident and I'm looking for these incidental connections, uh, I try and make the ones that are already foundated in my life stronger. So with mum and my sister and my family, I'm really making an effort to once a week see them face-to-face when I'm there in Newcastle, or if not, it's a call catch-up. It's I really want to know what their life is, is like, what's happening in their life. I'm telling them about mine. 
with friends, it's making the effort. So, you know, sometimes it is easier to sit at home on a Thursday night and do nothing. But also if you go out with that, have the connections with your mates, you feel better afterwards every single time. Uh, and then within the community, it's headphones for me with the biggest one. So I would always be down at the dog park or whatever, and I would have headphones in and that straight up puts walls around everyone else that I'm not contactable. I'm not able to, to, to talk to. So take the headphones out and just look for those incidental connections in your life within the community, because they're everywhere. <laughs> they are quite everywhere. And I don't want to say that we're losing the ability to, but if we keep going down the path that we are now, it's going to become such a independent lifestyle and no one's going to be able to share their life with anyone else. Unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, man, they're such great tips. I feel like anyone listening who might be in that kind of place where they are feeling a bit disconnected, hopefully can get a bit of inspiration from those couple of words. Tell me about as well, um, the gratitude practice in the morning, your, your cold showers. Tell me why you yeah, got recommended that. Right. So the cold showers is actually my most hated therapy out of all of them. <laughs> so that was came from uh, Dr. Selena Bartlett and she said that a cold shower on the back of back of the brainstem each day uh, increases the happy hormones and decreases stress hormones and things like that. For me, it's uh, the accountability of it. So my mental health is all about rhythm. So if I'm feeling good and I'm feeling happy and um, I have physical exercise in my life, I have these connections. I also put in these little, little pebbles along the way, like cold showers, like not looking at my phone first thing in the morning. And if I'm a, keeping myself accountable to them, it's just, it rolls on to the next day and the next day. And it's feels fantastic once you get all of these things right consecutively over and over and it just becomes a routine. Mm. Yeah. I have a thing at home and I've talked about this a little bit recently on the podcast. I have a board that says like full potential on it and me and my partner have like Monday to Friday and there's 13 different things. Um, so it's like breath work, meditation, 30 minutes in nature, 30 minutes exercise, drink enough water, take our supplements, um, communicate as a couple is a big one, like actually putting directed time onto that, a bit of work. Um, what else do I have on it? There's a couple more. There's about 13, but if you add it over seven days, it ends up being 101. So then we give ourselves a score out of 101 at the end of our week for our full potential, not with any judgment, but just to see how we felt in the weeks where we we're hitting closer to all of these things that we know make us feel good. And that's where coming back to this idea of being conscious of your choices. It's like, if we're just going on our phone and just going, Oh, whatever it is, what it is, but not thinking, okay, this is triggering stress in my mind. Of course, I'm going to be more stressed today. Okay. Am I going to do my gratitudes in the morning, which is going to release oxytocin in my mind and serotonin, which is going to make me feel a bit better and see the world through a different lens today. Am I doing the cold shower? Because I know scientifically it's going to lower my stress levels and it's going to raise my happiness. There's all these things that we kind of know. And I always say knowledge is knowing, wisdom is doing, and just building that accountability into your life and doing the things that you're good. Another good example is like how many, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I end up with so many cool supplements for somehow, like just through different whatever. Yeah. And so often I don't take them. Who has a draw? I can guarantee almost every second person has a bloody drawer full of stuff that they don't use. It's actually probably good for their health, but you just don't use because you're too lazy or um, yeah, not too lazy, but just forget or just don't have that consistency. Are you yeah. someone similar to that? Like you've probably got different no, around your house. guilty of that. Yeah, you've got a foam roller at home you don't use. You've got this. It's like we all have a lot of great resources around us. It's actually using them. 
Mm. Yeah, I'm keeping yourself accountable to do it, making the effort. Like you said, you know, the gym's not always the, the the best thing and it's not what you want to do all the time, but you feel fantastic after you do it. So mm. I actually really like the the whiteboard idea because you can see, you can track yeah. the process the whole way through and you can see at the end how well you've done. And I also like how you said it's a non-judgmental way of seeing a score at the end of the week. It's like, okay, we can maybe do better next week or or this is something that we can add to it. So seeing your goals or what you want out of yourself on a physical piece of you know paper or wipe or whatever it is, I found that was really helpful to me. And it sounds like for you as well. Yeah, it's been a good one just to like kind of see it and go, oh yeah, that's the thing. Oh fuck, I haven't done my stretching today. Oh, I'm going to go do that tonight. And then we sit every night and we kind of go through it and it's a bit of a game and like, oh, you didn't do all of yours today. Like, <laughs> another, like other ones we have is like stretching, drinking enough water, like all these very basic health habits that most of us know, but not a lot of us are doing. So it's just trying to keep the accountability. For sure. We, we're going to move forward now. So we've talked about your story. We've talked about the documentary, but we, before we jumped on um, recording, you were telling me about your newfound love for skiing. Yeah. Um, tell me what you're looking forward to, man. You obviously were a very athletic, sporty person, losing a leg, something that obviously completely changes your lifestyle, completely changes the way that you approach different exercise activities and sporting activities um yeah how's life changed and what do you got to look what are you looking forward to coming up yeah so before i lost my leg i was a surfer snowboarder everything um so it was quite a massive adjustment for me losing the leg and then losing that ability to be able to do so um so it was a huge goal of mine to get back on the ski fields but i didn't quite know what that looked like until i had a few lessons with an organization called dwa disabled winter sports australia and they said, look, you're a pretty fit, healthy young man. Why don't we try three tracking, which is skiing on one leg without the use of the prosthetic and with the assistance of outriggers. So a few days of falling on my ass and I picked it up. And then all of a sudden it was just, it was a newfound love and experience. I felt creative again. I felt like more like myself going down the mountain and it's just me and my natural body. And I could feel, I could feel that, all the couple of years just washing off me and saying, this is, this is me now. This is exactly what I want to be doing. So uh, fast forward to this year, I've just done four months down in Jindabyne skiing at Parashar, honing in on those skills, uh, attending a few athlete development camps where I showed a lot of promise. And I'm now being sent overseas to Colorado for five months for their winter season to train with the US Paralympic team. Mate, congratulations that's so cool i am um, i feel my one of my best friends is paralympian of the year currently ben tudhope who's um a snowboarder as well so i'm sure you'll get to meet him i know you met um sam tate who's also a previous guest on this podcast but two um australian paralympic uh ski and snowboarders which is pretty cool i just it fascinates me the whole paralympic world and yeah the community that there is there and that the people who quite often have been dealt a card that yeah, it's, it's unfortunate in life in some circumstances, but so many people are like, hey, it's my superpower now. And um, I'm sure looking back at your story in the next couple of years, you're going to have opportunities that you would have never had if you didn't lose your leg. So it obviously comes with a bit of balance, but yeah, it's exciting, man, for you. I can't wait to see hopefully getting you um, on that Paralympic team. What's the category? Is there a category for, would you look yeah, at doing like slope style? No. Yeah, Super GS is probably my super best bet. Yeah. So yep. in my classification, I'm going to be versing people with below knee amputations. So that means they have two skis, four edges, so they can generate a lot more speed than what I can. So doing the Super GS is going to give me an, a lot extra time to make up that speed. 
Okay. Um, but mate, honestly, I just want to wear the green and gold for that the community one that I'm so proud to be a part of. And um, it's very early days, but it seems like a community that I want to be a part of because they all lift each other up. So mm. yes, we have this, I like to call it, it is a disability, but it's it's not that. It's an, a challenge to overcome and everyone in each discipline have their own story and you know it's a comeback and this is the best version of each other and we're all lifting each other up. That's something I'm seeing from the outside looking in very early. Mate, I love that. Yeah, I've got um, yeah, connections to a lot of different people with disabilities and I've had plenty on the podcast, which it just fascinates me. I, f- I love hearing people's stories and quite often if somebody has a disability, especially if it's not one they're born with, it comes with quite a horrific story, but also a story that a lot of people can draw inspiration from, just like yours, man. But bro, this has been an amazing chat. I really appreciate your time. I know you've had a very busy week yeah, on the media tour, getting the documentary out there. Um. I will leave in the show notes links. Did you say it's not coming out till next year on SBS? No, it's out now. SBS oh, it's out now? On demand. Yep. Go and watch it. Beautiful. I'll um leave that all in the show notes. I'm sure everyone will be keen to go check that out. I'm sure people as well reach out to you on social media and want to yeah give a bit of love to your story because it, it's really special, man. Your honesty today has been amazing. I know everyone will be touched by your story, but also hopefully really be able to relate and look around in their community at the people who are feeling lonely or even if they're feeling lonely themselves with some strategies that we've spoken about today that are really going to help. So the last question I do finish every good humans podcast is the same. And I'm guessing you might've heard one or two of the episodes. So what does being a good human mean to Joey Fry? Right. It's, it's being who I am. So I want to be the best version of myself. And that is to, it comes in the way of looking forward to other people uh, I want to hear their stories and everything like that. So I really want to live a life that's uh, ambition better for everyone, really. That's that's what me, being good human means to me. Mate, I bloody love it. Well, dude, thank you so much. I'll, um, yeah, as I said, leave everything in the show notes for everyone to find. But yeah, any last words of wisdom for the good humans audience? Yeah, mate, I just want to say to anyone out there that has drawn inspiration from our, our chat today, uh, I, I feel, I hope that you can draw something to make better of your life and i'm always contactable um if you ever want to have a chat or anything so instagram or uh, whatever you'll be able to find me and we can we can talk it talk it out bloody epic and go watch the documentary it's bloody sick i just watched it mate thanks for jumping on you're a legend catch up soon good on you cooper i appreciate it bro hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.